Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the shameful part of New Zealand's history that's still a heavy burden. I don't think there was any civic family who was not touched by the dawn raids or the random checking in one way and another. That was an instance of state-sanctioned racism, state-sanctioned terror. Why it is time for an apology over the dawn raids of the 1970s. It's an awful story for the start of a significant community within New Zealand. After the Second World War, Pacifica workers were encouraged here by the government and employers needing cheap labour. But by the early 70s, New Zealand faced two economic shocks, soaring oil prices and Britain joining the European Economic Community. As unemployment grew, so-called overstayers became scapegoats. And in March 1974, the dawn raids began. I didn't even have an experience of what a dawn raid is until I heard the big bang on my door. When we opened the door, they just walked in and started asking questions. A lot of the young men, when the police came, they all went out. Um, took out through the back, and then they all got rounded up. Then the police discovered all of them were, in fact, um, citizens, were meant to be here. Those are people interviewed for the 2005 documentary Dawn Raids, made by Rachel Jean's Isola Productions. There are a lot of uh, Māori Pacific young people my age who were being unlawfully detained by police, and this was very much our normal. Reverend Alec Toliafor is a Polynesian panther and part of the collective that is negotiating an apology by the government. He was a teenager living in Ponsonby when police started random checks on him and his friends. I spoke to him from Southland where he's touring with an exhibition about the raids. We would simply be detained for no apparent reason and sometimes we're exposed to police brutality as a result of that detention. And this was three years before the actual dawn raids. And as Polynesian Panther Party, we were already established three years before then. And so by the time the dawn raids happened, uh, we had already had worked out a strategy for the survival of our people within the community. Would you just be walking down the street and the police would stop you? Yes. All we were doing was walking down the street and being brown. Our role at that time was essentially uh, dealing with uh, large-scale policing, that's demonstrations, uh, sports events, uh, and also uh, street violence and disorder. That's former Task Force Commissioner Ross Dallow from the Dawn Raids doco. And uh, in the mid-70s, the police had lost, to some extent, control of the streets, and it was a matter of regaining that. There was a lot of irrational and illogical behaviour that we were subjected to. Pacific people were coming to New Zealand in large numbers. We were the first uh, New Zealand-born generation, uh, and so we were experiencing a lot of racism, in-your-face racism and institutional racism, and the police and the relationship they had with us was was just a a very in-your-face example of that institutional racism. Can you describe what it was like? The police would pull over in their car and and confront you? Well, we were already suspects even before we left our home. Whether Whether we had committed a crime or not, we were just suspects. I recall a Saturday evening walking home from a friend's place 
I was unlawfully detained and questioned. And when I asked why I was being questioned, I was just tossed in the police car, taken away, and then assaulted by the police, and then dropped back in my neighbourhood as though nothing had happened. And could you, was there anybody that you could go to about that and complain? Well, no, there wasn't. At the time, the courts would take the word of the police over our word. We're just 15, 16-year-olds. There was no legal resources that we could access or that were affordable. And we're looking at a migrant population for whom English is a second language. It was even difficult at the time for people whose first language was English to understand the gobbledygook of law and civil rights. What the Polynesian Party did was create a legal aid resource, a publication which was called Legal Aid, and circuitly the 600 copies that were made and printed by the Resistance Bookshop and circulated in our community. That was the first ever legal resource that enabled our people to understand the law and their rights uh, when being questioned by the police and their human rights. Let's bring in Joris Debrez here. He's a former race relations commissioner and for a short time in the 70s he was a reporter. But he was also active in the Citizens Association for Racial Equality or CARE and other campaign groups. All I can remember is that it was a horrible horrible time Mm. Uh, and you had immigration policy and you had discrimination in terms of applying the law Uh, you had government and business complicity in encouraging people to come to New Zealand and turning a blind eye when their permits expired and then you had a turnaround when jobs became more tight when there was an economic downturn We'd had oil shock and New Zealand had its first wave of unemployment Richard Preble is a former MP for Central Auckland. Something that had not occurred for since the Depression. Uh, and the government of the day found it very easy and a lot of support from Talkback Radio, which was just starting, to suggest that this was all the fault of the Pacific Islanders. Um, whoever's fault it was, it couldn't have been theirs, but they were an easy scapegoat. And here's Aussie Malcolm, former Immigration Minister. Churches, employers had all welcomed these Pacific Islanders without residence permits um, to fill the factories and to fill the coffers of the churches. And suddenly these people who had been welcomed when it suited New Zealand found themselves in a position they were unwanted when it suited New Zealand. So somewhere in all of that, however it happened, and I, I do believe there's got to be more work done on this now, looking back at actual police records and immigration records and cabinet records, to say, well, you know, how exactly did it come to this? But it happened very suddenly in March 1974 when um, they suddenly started really early morning raids, you know, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and started descending on on, um, places where uh, Tongan workers were believed to be staying and who were believed to be overstayers. Everyone was really scared, but they were coming in and and we knew we had some of our families who were overstayers at the time. And, um, you know, we were trying to talk to them. I was the only one there that could... um, But, um, you know, they were really rude and were just taken away. They said, no, they're coming with us. 
around about half past one in the morning. Then I heard this, you know, it's noisier and louder. So I got up and went to the door and I opened the door. And I saw two policemen standing there with a dog. What kind of support could you give people during these dawn raids, given that you were being targeted already by the police? Well, the kind of support that we were able to offer was to take our stories to the media. At the time, there was an evening publication that was called The Star, The Auckland Star. Uh, There was one reporter there. When he got hold of the story of the random checks and also of the dawn raids, with his assistance, uh, we were able to publish uh, the names of people who had been uh, randomly stopped. I ended up somehow being a person that, that, that the media turned to, and that's partly because specific people didn't want to talk to the media. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to stick their heads up. Right. And uh, I just had a couple of really good allies in the media, I'd have to say. One was Judy McGregor, who went on to be the editor of the Dominion, and Con O'Leary, who was a journalist with the Auckland Star. Both the Dominion and the Star did a pretty good job uh, and, and covered this stuff. This was in the face of denials by the government and denials by the police that there were random checks on civic and Māori people happening. I can't say that necessarily the rest of the media had the same. Is that right? (laughs) We were able to tell these stories. That was important in terms of ultimately moving public opinion and putting pressure on the government. The idea of the random checks was to stop anybody that did not look like a New Zealander or who might be suspected of being an overstayer. It wasn't the majority of overstayers who were targeted. It was just us, the Pacific community, and the ignorance of the authorities at that time to distinguish uh, between uh, an Indian and a Pacific person, and a Pacific person and a Māori person led to an uptake of all brown people, not just Pacific people. There were Pacific people who had every legal right to be here in New Zealand, people from countries or island nations like Niue, Tokelau, and the Cook Islands, they were all automatically New Zealand citizens. Tongans and Samoans had no such uh, link with the New Zealand government. So we were the ones who were being targeted. We were only one, like one third of the total overstayer population, but we were represented as 90% of the convictions and deportations. There was an instance of state-sanctioned racism, state-sanctioned terror. You didn't actually experience a dawn raid yourself, but you must have known people, you must have had friends who did go through it. So was everybody living in fear? Yes. I don't think there was any civic family who was not touched by the dawn raids or the random checking in one way or another. We all had... Uh, family and friends uh, who had the experience of the dawn raids, having their doors pretty much knocked down and police dogs surrounded, surrounding the premises, searching for, for suspect overstayers and uh, police surrounding the house. And even today, it is, it is extremely difficult for people to come forward and tell their story 
one of the enduring effects of the Dawn Raid is a sense of shame. The sense of shame that they were labelled as overstayers and illegal. Stories are surfacing as recently as uh, a fortnight ago, where at the age of 20, um, a young Pacific person experienced the Dawn Raids. Uh, and since that time, never been able to speak to anybody about their experience and they've lived with that in silence. So the first big big wave of migration was really, you know, birthed in a in a climate of serious racism. That's at the heart of when we talk about this question of whether, you know, an apology is due. Um, I, I think it needs to be kind of recognised that this is an awful story for the start of a significant community within New Zealand. But, but as I say, it went on from there, you know, to even worse under the next government. Why did it get worse? It's hard to understand, looking back on it, why it went on for so long. What happened was that the Labour government recognised very quickly that this was not acceptable. I don't know whether they instructed the police to do it or whether the police did this within the powers that they had, but but it you know it only went on for a very short time before the protests mounted, and then a, the Minister of Immigration, Fraser Coleman, announced that these kinds of dawn raids were contrary to the New Zealand values uh, and called a halt to them. And then uh, Norman Kirk declared an amnesty, and then a whole process took place of people being given the opportunity to register. Some went home, but you know, about half of them were allowed to stay. And that sparked, you know, that was exploited by the opposition. So during that period of regularising the situation for migrant workers, overstayers, there was a frenzy being whipped up about the fact that these people were going to be allowed to stay here. You know, they'd broken the law. So the very act of trying to resolve the situation led to an increase in the hysteria about it and some parts of the public fostered um, and, and stirred up by, by the, um, the opposition who then became the government. There was a time when New Zealand cities were quiet and clean. People said they were nice places to bring up children. But the cities grew alarmingly. People poured in, not just from the country, but from other countries as well. 62,000 in just two years. Then one day, there weren't enough jobs either. The people became angry, and violence broke out. Especially among those who had come from other places expecting great things. And then when they became the government, they delivered. <laughs> you know, We had um, much worse uh, dawn raids. Uh, what and do then, you mean by much worse? What, what was well, there going were just on? more of them. It went on much longer. Uh, and there was a there was a momentum building in opposition to it, but it it became a part of the the practice of the police. And and again, they they did le- lead to the point of having an, an overstayers register, but then you know that was fraught with difficulty because they almost kind of tricked Pacific Island community leaders into ensuring you know, encouraging compliance with it. What was the idea behind the register? It was seen as a, a way of enabling people to to avoid being dawn raided basically they said you know we'll give you a safe safe way out and some people will be able to stay if you come forward you won't be arrested and Uh, did that happen in talks with the community leaders 
initially they were very reluctant, and then they were they were given to believe that many people would be able to stay. And then, of course, they they worked hard after that in good faith to encourage people to register. So a significant number of people, several thousand people registered. The bulk of them were then sent home. That was the difference. Did you say they were almost tricked into putting their names down? The way that the uh, Air Commodore Gill, the Minister of Immigration, and Muldoon uh, presented what they were going to do to Pacific Island community leaders at that time led them to believe that that uh, overstayers would be dealt with fairly and reasonably and that, that there would be an opportunity to regularise their position. They did not expect what happened, which is that a very large number of them uh, were deported or, you know, basically um, registered and sent home. But um, when, when the government had closed the register, that's when they started these random checks on the streets. And, and to me, that was the worst time. In that time, uh, Amnesty Araha became, you know, the, a, a major campaigner. They actually sent me and Donna Abateri um, around the Pacific when Air Commodore Gill uh, was on a kind of PR mission to to Pacific governments. Yeah, they sent us over to brief each government before Air Commodore Gill arrived. I went there with a big a scrapbook of press clippings, and we, Donna and I sort of went through and said, this is what actually happened. You know, this is how they used the dogs, and this is how they came in the night, and this is the things that Mr Gill is saying in New Zealand, and this is the things that Mr Muldoon is saying in New Zealand, and this is the things he's saying in the Pacific. Yeah, and so what was the reaction of Pacific governments to that? Well, the one scene I remember more than any other is when they had a reception for Air Commodore Gill at Parliament in Apia, and we were invited as well. Uh, having already met with the Prime Minister at the time. And when Air Commodore Gill arrived, all the members of Parliament present turned their backs to him, which is a very powerful statement. Mm. And, I, you know, I mean, one of the things I see in the overall argument about this is that not only, you know, were there things that were done to Pacific people in New Zealand, but that also damaged our relationships with Pacific nations. What is the lasting legacy of those dawn raids? Mistrust, mistrust of authority, uh, well, mistrust of the New Zealand government, and also within our own community as well. Still today, there is, I don't know what to call it or how to describe it, but there are Pacific people who do find it difficult to be able to stand tall in the Pacific community because of that, to live a full life, carrying, as Joris Debris described, this burden. Uh, and I, I don't know if you're aware, but Pauline Smith from Ihuru Trust in Invercargill, and also the author of the book The Dawn Raids, she created the Dawn Raids exhibition, which in the last three years has been touring different centres around Aotearoa. In uh, each of those places where it's been addicted, Stories and people have emerged who've just had the courage to be able to talk about how the Dawn Raids affected them. And these were people who were Dawn Raided. And the common thing that emerges from these stories is just a sense of terror and the sense of powerlessness to do anything about what was happening to them then and since. So the Dawn Raid exhibition 
have become kind of a platform, uh, we hope, for the beginning of healing. And you are part of the collective that's negotiating an apology by the government. Is there going to be an apology? Yes. I mean, what sort of response has there been so far? There are some things, of course, that we uh, are not at liberty to disclose. But what we can say is that the general tenor of our conversations with uh, the government by way of the Ministry of Pacific Peoples and the tenor is, is one of let's work together on this. We are, as you say, not just looking for a sorry, but we are wanting to explore ways where restoration is possible. We are even removing from our language, as we talk about this with the government, terms like compensation, reparation. These are all adversarial terms that we do not want to use. The language that we are using is the language of healing and restoration. And one of the foci that we have in that respect is looking at providing educational resources and seeing that they're established as part of the diet of the New Zealand curriculum in schools. We also need the government to understand its own accountability in the way that it has treated Pacific people and other migrants. There is a very long history in New Zealand of bad and ill treatment of migrant peoples by the government, successive governments. Whatever can be done to accelerate the process of lifting people out of poverty and housing inequality, and so there's a sort of social economic inequality needs to be examined in that as well, because it, how a community starts often influences the way they evolve. And so not only did the Pacific people come here for particularly for unskilled jobs, then they experienced all this, and then they became the, some of the, the greatest victims of the economic restructuring in the late 80s and, and early 90s, uh, which again set people back, you know, but that's because they were in that position. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so others can find us too. Alexia Russell and Jesse Chang produced this episode. Flo Wilson engineered it. And thanks to Reverend Alec Tolia-Four and Joris Debrez. And thanks also to Rachel Jean, whose iSolar Productions made the 2005 documentary Dawn Raids. Kakite.